Are your expectations getting in the way of your travel plans? If we go with no expectation, we arrive with the capacity to be surprised. And if you're not going to be surprised, why, why travel at all? Eric Weiner suggests that it may be time to reconsider places that you might have thought were too boring for a vacation. He explains how that works in a few minutes. John Branch's articles on climbers and hunters, Olympic racers and runners have won him nearly every major journalism award. He shares some of his favorites reporting from the back roads of sports. As a journalist, I'm a proxy for the reader. I'm the one who gets to go to these cool places, and my job is to try to bring the reader along. And Dion Searcy took her family to live in Dakar, Senegal, when she got a promotion to work in West Africa. She says you'll like its cool music and surf scene, and it's not really so far away. It's as close to fly to Paris from New York as it is to fly to Dakar. Come along for the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. What would it be like to take on an overseas job sight unseen in a country you've never visited? New York Times journalist Dion Searcy tells us how her family made their home in Dakar, Senegal, for a few years, and why you might like to visit there, too. And journalist John Branch has traveled far to write about ordinary people doing extraordinary things at the edges of the sporting world. He shares a few of his most memorable accounts in just a bit. Another distinguished reporter, Eric Weiner, formerly of NPR, starts us out on today's Travel with Rick Steves to sing the praises of places that some folks might think of as boring. Eric Weiner has learned that interesting is a relative term. He tells us how he found cities you might be tempted to call really boring at first glance can actually have plenty to offer as travel destinations. Eric joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to offer some encouragement on how to get more from your travels to some of the world's less obvious, perhaps more boring, places. Eric, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here, Rick. So you actually make a case for going to boring places. You, you mentioned in your book that boring places are like gyms. What do you mean by that? Well, why do you go to the gym? You don't go to the gym because they're fun or interesting. Uh, you go there because uh, you want to press yourself. You want to push yourself, and you want to get in shape. If you went to a gym that was too easy, where all the weights were like five ounces, uh, you would never get in shape. Hmm. Um, so in my mind, uh, going to a boring place, in quotes, presses you. It's it's like lifting a heavier weight. Um, can you find something interesting here in, in Geneva or Izmir, Turkey or Cleveland or places that, not to pick on these places, but places that really are not at the top of the traveler's wish list? I think there's a lot to be said for boring places. And I, I guess I'm with you, but I, I wouldn't build a trip around boring places, but I would remember certain times you just find yourself in a boring place. You've got a convention in Geneva or you've got relatives in Cleveland and you can have a positive attitude and make it a good place. It's funny you say Geneva because I've always used Geneva as an example of a boring place. In itself, it's not evil. It's just there's so many more instant gratification places from a sightseeing point of view all around you. And I, I thought Geneva just felt sterile to me. How how did you like Geneva? What did you find about Geneva that made I, it I guess I feel that in a place like Geneva, unlike, say, Paris, which is really not that far away, uh, there's less pressure. You know, there's less pressure hmm. to, to check all these things off your box because there are fewer boxes to check, let's be honest. And you're more likely to find a uh, less touristed city, less crowded. Um, you're going to find a city that's just going about its daily business that is not really uh, catering to tourists. It's not a must-see destination. So if you miss something, 
you know, it's not the end of the world. It's like, oh, you didn't see the Louvre in Paris? This is tragic. In Geneva, you didn't see, I don't know what you have to see. Yeah. So it's actually very liberating. And, you know, I put, I say boring in quotes because there really are no boring places. They're just boring travelers who decide, oh, this place is of no interest to me. And part so, of it is expectations. Yeah. You made a point of, uh, you know, exciting places create expectations. And in a sense, that's yeah. an enemy of happiness because you Absolutely. can say, yeah, I mean, if you're if you're again not to pick on Paris, but if you're in Paris and and you're going for the first time in your life and you've you've read Hemingway and you've read F. Scott Fitzgerald and you've read all these about romantic Paris, um, you get off that plane and you're like, okay, Paris, wow me, let me see what you got, right? And you're setting yourself up for a big disappointment. Um, you really only have one way to go, which is down, in the you know enjoyment area. Yeah. And I think if you go to a place that is quote unquote boring. Um, you arrive with I wouldn't say with low expectations because that's that's tricky too. I would actually say no expectations, and that is my philosophy of travel: is go somewhere with no expectations. No um, expectations. Now that's not f- going to love it, not going to hate yeah, it, but be open. Um, be open, and I think going to these quote unquote boring places challenges your skills as a traveler because you can always find something interesting, and if you don't, you're not trying hard enough. It's kind of a and Buddhist. I, it's kind of a Buddhist um, approach uh, with no expectations. I, I suppose, yeah. yeah. Um, in that, you know, the, the Buddhist would say that you're not constantly. You don't have your judging mind. You know, if you've ever tried meditating, you of course quickly become aware of how much you're like, oh, this is bad. This is good. I like that music. I don't like that smell. <laughs> and and if we go to a place again like Paris or or New York or some place that's on our wish list, we. We're, we're going to be judging it from the time we get off the plane. Does it live up to this unrealistic expectation we've created in our mind? If we go with no expectation, we arrive with the capacity to be surprised. And if you're not going to be surprised, why, why travel at all? Okay, so that's something good to pack along, the, the fine distinction between low expectations and no expectations. Eric Weiner is singing the praises of traveling with our eyes wide open and enjoying places you didn't expect you would. He's joining us from the studios of NPR in Washington, D.C., where he worked as a reporter for many years. It's a conversation we recorded just before the pandemic started to rearrange all our plans and expectations. Among Eric's books are The Socrates Express, The Geography of Genius, and The Geography of Bliss. Eric also leads writing workshops in Bhutan and in Flagstaff, Arizona. There's more on his website, ericweinerbooks.com. Eric, when you talk about the surprises from boring places, you mentioned how when a place is excited, it's going to be crowded, it's going to be filled with exhilaration, but boring places might be a little fresher, a little less thumbed through, a little more receptive to us. You talked about Bali, for instance, where everybody goes, and another island in Indonesia called Lombok. Right, and and only, I think, 20, 30 miles, if that, separate them. And they're a world apart. Bali is a Hindu island. Uh, Lombok is Muslim. Um, Bali is, you know, yes, it's beautiful. Yes, it is amazingly diverse and beautiful. Lombok, a little less so. But in exchange for accepting a little less beauty, which is relative anyway, you're rewarded with a really a more authentic experience where there are far few visitors uh, where still in this day and age, believe it or not, seeing a foreigner is cause for villagers to come out and check you out. 
And I just think you can do this. You can look at the map and say, well, I, I want to see Bali. No, let's go to Lombok. Or I want to see Paris. Well, no, try Dijon or another city. Uh, you can always find, it seems, every really thumb through huh. interesting city has a younger, smaller brother or sister that people tend to ignore, and I don't know why. You know, I was just in Bath in England, and I've been going to Bath all my life, and I just love it. And it didn't quite occur to me that Bristol, very important port, but but there's nothing glamorous or cute about Bristol. It's just half an hour away by train. So I went to Bristol, and it was exactly what you're talking about. It was frumpier. It was, I had low expectations. It was more honest. It was, they didn't, they weren't treating me like a tourist and part of the economy, but I was a, a friend who was visiting, and it really worked out well. You mentioned Dijon. I think that's fascinating because not a lot of tourists go to Dijon. What was your experience in Dijon? I don't know how I ended up there, but I, I did. I can't recall, but I do remember thinking, you know, it, it's a city, a small city, um, best known for the mustard that's created there. And yes, there is a mustard museum in Dijon, and I did go there. Um, but beyond that, you know, the museums of Paris or, or other French cities, no comparison. But it, it has this ordinary life and in, in vineyards nearby, and I just find... It takes all the pressure off. There's nothing I have to see in Dijon. Once I've seen the Mustard Museum, I'm in the clear, Rick. I'm like just free-floating. Seeing the it. Mustard Museum, that's it. check that off the box. And, um, and then you can be in a town. You can be a, a, a temporary French person in a, in a very honest work-a-day town that is perfectly French. I- exactly. Maybe in our hemisphere, Eric, or in our country, uh, an equivalent would be Cleveland. Um, I go mm. to Cleveland a fair amount to work with public broadcasting there, and I love the people in Cleveland, and of course you got to see the Rock and Roll Museum, but uh, it's not a city that would be on the bucket list for a German coming to the United States. Make a case for it Cleveland. Would, it would not be, and uh, I, I don't want to be uh, dissing Cleveland. I say this as a child of Baltimore, another city that suffers from uh, kind of what I call an image lag. You know, there's a lag between, you know, the reality of realities of these cities and their image tends to lag. I'm thinking of Baltimore, where I'm from, Cleveland and Pittsburgh, cities that are actually not only livable, but really charming and beautiful in their own way. And yet, maybe this is a generational thing, but I think people still think Pittsburgh, Baltimore, Cleveland, these are not places that you go as a traveler, but why not? You know, why not? Um, you're going to find all kinds of hidden surprises there. You know, in each of those cities, I've been in the last year to give a lecture, and I had a couple hours of free time in the afternoon. My hotel's right in downtown. And I've got out, and I remember walking around the city just kind of wonderstruck, enjoying the architecture, enjoying the people watching, uh, enjoying the welcome I received, and uh, and there was no gimmicky tourism at all around me. Right, because you went to a boring place. So <laughs> have I converted you to a boring places person? You've converted me to remember that, as you said, there are no boring places, only boring travelers. And exactly. uh, if, if you were to sum it up, Eric, what would what would the, the, the fundamental skill of not being a boring traveler be? Ooh, oh, boy, that's a tough one. Um, I would say go to a place with no expectations, with your eyes wide open, and with a deep willingness to be completely wrong about mm. what you thought of this place and to be surprised. I love um, that. It's, it's a, it's a, a receptivity. to be totally yeah. wrong. To be totally wrong. Um, it's a receptivity, which is why before I go to a place, I will certainly read the history because I can't travel back in time, not yet, 
but I will actually avoid reading contemporary accounts, other travelers, travel writers writing about Budapest or Moscow or wherever it is. Um, I, I don't want my filters to be dirtied with their perceptions. You know, I, I want to see it pure and clean with what's been called an innocence of the eye. And the only way you can do that is if you arrive unclouded with no expectations. You know, I've built my career writing about great sites and must-see attractions and how to organize your time to get all that in on the shortest vacations in the rich world that we Americans are stuck with. And you've built your career on writing books like The Geography of Bliss and The Geography of Genius and The Socrates Express, reminding us that wherever we go, if we bring the right attitude and the right amount of expectations, which are none, we can enjoy travel anywhere. Eric Weiner, thanks so much. Thank you. Eric explains how getting the most out of a city like Geneva requires a little patience. It's in a program extra at ricksteves.com slash radio. What would you expect of a city like Dakar, Senegal? In just a bit, Dionne Searcy tells us how she and her family enjoyed living there for four years while she reported on the region for the New York Times. But first, another Times journalist, John Branch, tells us about the places he's been to write about people on the back roads of sports where matters of life and death are part of the ride. It's Travel with Rick Steves. His reporting on everything from rock climbers and alligator hunters to skiers tumbling in avalanches will leave you breathless. John Branch has won nearly every major journalism prize for his sports writing for the New York Times. Of the thousands of stories he's reported on, John gathered a few of his favorites in his book, Side Country, Tales of Death and Life from the Back Roads of Sports. He joins us now from his home studio just north of San Francisco. John, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Rick. Thank you for having me. You're not a conventional sports writer. I guess that's why you won a Pulitzer Prize. Uh, the title of your book, Side Country, kind of tells it all. What does side country mean, and, and uh, what distinguishes your reporting? Yeah, a lot of my friends say I'm a, a poor excuse for a sports reporter because I don't go to very many games anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah, so side country is a term that comes from skiing. It means the area just outside of a ski boundary, um, as opposed to the back country, which has this notion of being far, far away. The side country is very accessible. And so that's why I titled the, the book this. It came up in one of the stories that's part of this book, but it also, I think, is kind of a, an apt metaphor for the kind of work I like to do. You know, accessible, but a little bit out of bounds. Yeah, the side country is, that's when you're skiing, you see that sign that says, if you go beyond here... The ski patrol is not going to help you. You are on your own. That You're is on true. your own. And then a lot of people, their endorphins start doing flip-flops and they're on their way. That's exactly right. So a lot of these stories are about those kinds of people. Wow. Now, how did you assemble the chapters? Because you've got, I guess you've written a couple thousand articles for the New York Times over the years, and you had to choose a handful. That must have been an interesting experience, just kind of emotionally. It was. It was interesting just because I mostly just did it off the top of my head. Um, these are stories that, that stick with me. It's, you know, a wide range of sports, mostly sports that I didn't know a whole lot about before I got into this. Mm -hmm. Everything from base jumping to alligator hunting. Um, and there's a couple of personal essays in there, too, that um, that stick with me. You know, I, I don't have a very good memory necessarily for all the stories that I've written and all the people I've met. But these were 20 some of the stories that just off the top of my head said, I'll never forget these. You know, we think of sports baseball, football, basketball, and the people who do it are athletes. Well, of course, there's countless uh, things that would be defined as sports, but are, are the people involved all athletes in these sports, you know, horseshoes and this kind of thing? 
Yeah, probably not. Um, one of the stories is about my son who became very adept at Rubik's Cubes. I'm not sure I would call people who do Rubik's Cubes in the matter of seconds um, right. athletes necessarily, but they're all doing something that I think can be construed as different, maybe sort of physical, yeah. a, lot, a lot mental. Uh, most of these sports, as they always say, is they're 90% mental. And that's, I think, the case for a lot of these because there's a lot of fear involved in these, a lot of anxiety involved in these. Yeah. Um, and if it's not demanding physically, it can be really demanding mentally also. Absolutely. I mean, I've never jumped off a cliff to base jump in a, in a wingsuit, but I would imagine there's a, a lot of mental gymnastics going on there. So your lead story is called Side Country, and it's from my neck of the woods. It's uh, the Cascades, uh, an hour east of Seattle, and it's about a tragedy up there with an avalanche. Why was that? And I guess you won, you won your Pulitzer Prize with that. Uh, article. That's, that's correct, why, yes. Why was that Pulitzer worthy and uh, why was it one of your favorites? Well, that was a story that um, goes back a few years ago and there was a, a deadly avalanche up near Stevens Pass in the Cascades. And at the time, we thought there's probably an opportunity to write about avalanches in a broad sense. You know, they're, they're one of those tragedies that kill dozens of people each year in the U.S., um, but usually one or two people at a time. And so mm. you might just hear a blurb about it now and again. And we thought, you know, maybe nobody stepped back to really capture what happens with avalanches and why they're, why they're deadly, why they kill dozens of people every year. And it was really at a time, which it, it's still this way now, where people were more and more going outside the boundary gates, as we were talking about. People were, um, were being enticed by ski areas who were saying, hey, you know, if you don't like it inside our ski resort, you can walk outside and there's all this great terrain. Manufacturers were coming up with uh, with ways to try to keep people safe or at least give some sort of semblance of safety, an illusion of safety. And so we tried to capture all these things in one story. And as it came down to it, I really focused on the Stevens Pass avalanche there in Washington uh, because it was the deadliest avalanche of that season, but also because there were a lot of witnesses. And that's mm -hmm. one of the rare things in avalanches is that Usually that was interesting. That's what I picked up was you had a lot of people to talk to who were um, right there and they had the gear in anticipation of an avalanche. I didn't realize that, but people, people ski with what balloons and little um, radio code emitters and so on. Yep. They have all sorts of transmitters and the poles to go searching for people. They now have these, these balloons that will pop up with the idea that it will help you rise to the top of the snow. There's still some questions whether those are really that useful, but yeah, these people were all expert skiers. And there is definitely an issue of groupthink that happens with these tragedies where they all knew in retrospect, this is probably not the place we should be right now. And nobody wanted to speak up because so that they was were it. There was a the little bit of momentum. I hadn't thought about that, but uh, talk a little more about the groupthink that could lead a group of people into losing half their half their gang. Yeah, the group that was there that day were um, some professional skiers, some backcountry skiers, some people from ski magazines, the marketing director for the ski area there who had coordinated this group. And he basically took this group and he was trying to impress them by, look at the train we have here at Stevens Pass. And once they got back there, they realized one at a time that the conditions were not great. I mean, it was deep, deep powder, but the avalanche conditions were yeah. a little sketchy. And um they just kind of went with it, which I think is what happens when you have a big group of people who nobody wants to speak up. By the way, you got a lot of mileage out of this article in print and online and uh, with the you know, videos and so on. Did the fact that they had their GoPros with them, was that a bonus for you as a, a journalist? 
Yeah, there was a lot of bonuses actually. And, and, you know, you asked about the Pulitzer, you know, the big reason why it ended up winning the, the Pulitzer prize was because of the multimedia that was attached to it, which, yeah. uh, my colleagues at the New York times, um, the wizards that I, I work with put together. We had the GoPro footage. We had 911 calls. There were a lot of kind of electronic or digital elements to this story that allowed me to piece together a timeline minute by minutes, almost second by second um, of what was happening. And we could compare GoPro footages to one another. It, um, That's amazing, it really. They were right there. I mean, hey, there's a pole and they saw where one of their friends was buried. Yeah. Part of that story, we ran the, the GoPro oh. footage of them, of one of the skiers who found yeah. a pole and realized what had, what had happened. And they were the first ones to start unburying bodies. Hmm. John Branch has written more than 2,000 articles on sports for the New York Times. 20 of his favorites are featured in his book, Side Country, Tales of Death and Life from the Back Roads of Sports. John's joining us from his home in Novato, California right now on Travel with Rick Steves. John won a Pulitzer for his reporting on an avalanche in the Cascade Mountains just outside of Seattle. It took the lives of three prominent skiers on a quiet Sunday morning in February, just a few years ago. He's on Twitter and Instagram, at JohnBranchNYT. John, it's clear that you like winter sports from your writing, and I understand you'll be uh, reporting on the 2022 Olympics from Beijing. And you were at the 2021 Olympics in Tokyo, weren't you? Now, that was the Olympics without, famously without spectators. What was that like? Yeah, that was a little strange. And I, and I, I felt bad for both the athletes and the people of Japan. You know, Japan had, had worked so hard to put these games on. And then when it came time to do it, uh, the stands were empty. They couldn't really connect mm. Tokyo itself or their culture to these games. It really felt, um, it felt like a dress rehearsal. These arenas were empty. Um, they felt you know, like that, that would have an stages. impact on the athletes, I would think, because would a lot of it is an impact the adrenaline the and the stands and the fans. Yeah, because most of these athletes are used to having people cheering for them. And this yeah. is the biggest moment, the moment they've been working for for all these years. And now their families are far away. They're not in the stands. They're friends, even, you know, a number of coaches. So for them, I think it felt, you know, it's not what they had dreamed of. I think they all have these Olympic dreams, and this is not exactly how they pictured it. So this is a travel show, and you're a sports writer, but you do a lot of traveling. How much travel is involved in the work you do for the New York Times? I um, I do cover the Olympics every time they come around. So in Tokyo this past summer and ahead up to Beijing, I was just in Switzerland to do some reporting for the Winter Olympics coming up. I have a story in Argentina that I'm trying to get to Argentina to uh, work on a, a climbing story. Uh, it sounds very exotic. There are times when I, I go to little small towns in Nevada to, to track down somebody. Uh, I spend a lot of time in the car driving around rural places. A lot of these stories are um, in small little towns around America. So I'm on the go probably a week or 10 days out of each month. So my, my exposure to great outdoor sports in Switzerland is the Berner Oberland, the area just south of Interlaken. I mean, of course, there's always climbers hanging from ropes on the north face of the Eiger. Yeah, yeah. The, um, some of them are still alive. It, yeah, and it's it's amazing. The um, the outdoors world there is much different than it is here in the U.S. I mean, I live here in California, and a lot of people like to base jump here in the United States, but it's illegal in most places in the national parks. Mm -hmm. And they all point to Switzerland and other places in Europe where they say, yeah, we can do it there, and it's a great tourism boon. Mm -hmm. You know, let people live a little bit freely, and here in America, we have way more restrictions. And so it's... Switzerland is well, you wrote a about that. For these you people. wrote an article called Lost Brother, right, about illicit jumping in Yosemite. Yeah, that's correct. And that's all around a man named Dean Potter, who was one of the premier climbers and base jumpers in America. And he was really pushing Yosemite and the National Park Service to open up to allow them to base jump there legally. 
And as he and I started to talk about a story on this subject, he was killed in Yosemite Valley, um, wingsuit flying at dusk one night. At, at dusk? At dusk. He and a partner um, jumped off the uh, cliffs at dusk, which is usually when they did it because fewer people would see it and the rangers wouldn't see them. And oh, they could do so it in because the, uh, dark it's illegal, they had to do it more dangerously. Exactly. That's so, a sad um, irony. And both of them followed one another um, straight into a, uh, they tried to go through a notch in the cliffs in Yosemite Valley and somehow miscalculated and uh, both were killed. Jeez. And you wrote it. I mean, there's lots going on in Yosemite. You also wrote a, an article called Don Wall. Talk us about that. Yeah. So the Don Wall was about two um, climbers, Kevin Jorgensen and Tommy Caldwell, who were trying to become the first to climb a certain route up El Capitan, you know, 3,000 feet of granite. And it's been climbed many times, but nobody had ever done this one side of it, which is just a sheer alabaster, smooth surface. And they spent nearly three weeks after years and years of prep, they spent about three weeks on the wall without coming down to the ground, climbing all the way to the top. And uh, that story ended up making uh, a lot of news. They were they became television sensation, led to a, uh, a documentary called The Don Wall. Um, but I was proud to be there to chronicle it. You know, when the way you wrote about it, it's almost, you don't think of it this way, but it's like a slow-moving game with strategies, with attempts, with uh, aborted missions, getting closer and closer and then finally you get to the goal line. Yeah, I mean, that especially was a really tedious thing. It's the opposite of base jumping, right, which happens in a second. Um, These guys planned it for years, and then, like you say, the whole goal is once you get up on the wall, you're attached to ropes, but everything has to be your hands and and feet are the only thing that can propel you up. And so they are tediously trying to cling to little pebbles on the side of El Capitan, (laughs) inching their way up, and if they fall, they start back to where they last were roped in and start doing it again. It's like ants who just keep getting pushed back. Yeah. Until they finally get to the top, I think you know, in I'm, 17 I, days. I'm, I'm just listening to you and I'm, I'm, I'm getting a sense that you were there. And in my work as a travel writer, I want to create that sense of place, that moment, that intimacy. How do you do that when you're dealing with adventure sports? Do you, do you even try to have that experience? Have you ever climbed eight feet up a sheer face just to see what it's like to hang on to a, a little tiny crevice? Maybe eight feet, but that's about my limit. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I appreciate you say that because, yeah, that's my goal, right? As a journalist, I'm a proxy for the reader. I'm the one who gets to go to these cool places, and my job is to try to bring the reader along. I like to, when I'm writing, I need to be right there. I, you need to stop right there. And, and uh, even if it's raining and you're, and you're huddled under your hood, you got to take those notes. Do you have, what's your yeah, process? I, I do the same thing. I like to write things as they're happening because it's clear. Um, I more and more, I type text messages to myself on my phone um, huh. just to get it out of my thumbs, out of my head, out of my yeah. thumbs and into my phone. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with John Branch, and we're talking about some of the people and events he's written about for the New York Times, and which he includes in his book, Side Country. John's also recently written a profile of a prominent Utah rodeo family and how they attempt to keep a part of the Old West still alive. That book's called The Last Cowboys. Hey, John, we're talking about these adrenaline sports and so on, but there's also inspirational human stories in the context of sports. What's it like as a sports writer to, to get away from, you know, the, the big linebackers and the, and the daredevil base jumpers and talk about uh, a small-town football coach in Iowa? Yeah, I like to get off the beaten path, and I like to do stories where I'm not in a locker room in a scrum of other reporters, where I, I know mm-hmm. that nobody else will tell the story if I don't tell the story. The one in Iowa was, was interesting because that was a, a small town in Iowa that was decimated by a tornado a few years ago, and the football mm-hmm. coach 
um, made it his mission to rebuild the high school and to rebuild the football stadium and and get Friday Night Lights back in the small town. And he did that. Um, unfortunately, a year later, in a, in a horrible twist, he was killed. He was shot dead by one of his former players. Mm. Um, so, you know, the heroes come in all forms. And I'm, I'm a big believer that the, the heroes typically aren't the ones that are the famous players, aren't the ones that right. you've read about so many times. Well, that's uh, that riveting quiet human heroes. interest that, that I think is really... It's just, um, there's an appetite for that. And often you're talking with people about not good news, you know? Yeah, I don't know how this happened, but I became, I think I'm a pretty jolly guy, but I became a guy, a sports writer who's written a lot about tragedy. And so a lot of the people in that book and a lot of stories I write are about people who have died. And I'm looking for that little spark of hope. You know, what what was it that that made them a bright light, if anything? Um, and, And let's talk about the people left behind. That's what most of these stories are. Hey, let's talk just for a minute about some of the sports we don't normally celebrate. I found that particularly fascinating in your book because I expected to get baseball stories, and I I don't even know if there is one. But you got bowling, you got horseshoes, you got Rubik's Cube. I mean, who'd have thunk horseshoes would get in your greatest hits collection? Well, this comes up all the time, Rick, because people are always saying, you know, is so-and-so the best athlete of all time? Is so-and-so the most dominant athlete of all time? And I always say, you guys are forgetting Alan Francis. Alan (laughs) Francis is the most dominant athlete I've ever, ever known or known of. And that's because he's won now 20-some world championships in horseshoes. He's unbeatable. Does he get a ringer every time? He gets him about 90% of the time. So that's Uh, like somebody who bowls 300 every time. Yeah. So you can probably be a pro horseshoe thrower, if that's your mission in life, if you yeah. maybe do 70 or 75% of the time, you can probably be a pretty good pro if you're 80% of the time. Yeah. Only one person does 90% of the time. <laughs> that's Alan Francis. Alan Francis of Defiance, Ohio. And then you even cover Children of the Cube, the Rubik's Cube puzzlers in Salt Lake City. Yeah. So my son got into Rubik's Cubes. Um, he's got some special needs. And so Rubik's Cubes are something that he really took to. And so I became a Rubik's Cube parent where I would take him to these tournaments, uh, mostly around the Bay Area. But he got good enough that he went to the Nationals a couple of times. And so I wrote a story hmm. about Nationals and about connecting with my son and watching my son connect with other kids who were all just looking hmm. to fit in somewhere. And, you know, um, I can see why you're successful in what you do, because you do more than, I mean, sports writing is a springboard for something more fundamental about our shared humanity. Yeah, I think so. It's it's maybe the thread that runs through these, but if you're looking for hardcore sports stories, you're probably not going to get them. These are human stories, I like to think. Kind of, I think I'm, I'm, I try to do something similar to that in my travel writing, is just seeing that there's a reason we travel. There's There's something higher than just getting a selfie in front of a waterfall, you know? Absolutely. And, uh, I know that you're you have a kind of a teaching mission or an inspirational mission. Is there a common thread that you take away from this? Because you had to cull through all of these articles and 20 articles made it into the book. Is there a common thread, a kind of a life lesson that comes out of this? I think if there is one, Rick, it's, it's that ordinary people do extraordinary things and you just don't hear about them. And these are all stories about people who have either put themselves or been put into extraordinary circumstances and there's the kinds of stories that aren't going to get told if somebody doesn't come along and say, there's something worthy here. There's a point to what you did or what you went through that maybe others can learn from. I love it. John Branch, the book is Side Country, Tales of Death and Life from the Back Roads of Sports. John, thanks so much and best wishes with your work. Thank you, Rick. John Branch describes one of his favorite assignments, reporting on a bowler in Ravenna, Michigan, who bowled the game of a lifetime in more ways than one. It's in an extra to today's show at ricksteves.com slash radio.
Another of the Times' distinguished reporters joins us next to tell us what it was like to move her family to Dakar, Senegal, to head the paper's West Africa Bureau a few years ago. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Growing up in a small town in Nebraska, could Dion Searcy ever have imagined becoming the New York Times Bureau Chief for West Africa? Her career sent her and her family to live in Dakar, Senegal from 2015 to 2019. As a former French colony, Senegal's been independent since 1960. It's about twice the size of Indiana with 16 million people. Its port city of Dakar is known as a music capital of West Africa in a country that's optimistic about its future. Dion Searcy wrote In Pursuit of Disobedient Women about her experience living and reporting in West Africa. She joins us from her home studio in Brooklyn to tell us what makes Dakar a destination you might like to explore as well. Dion, thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. So tell us how you ended up in Senegal and uh, how you took your whole family there. Well, I ended up there because I got a job as the West Africa Bureau Chief after about a year of covering the economy in in New York for the New York Times. And after many years of having kids and kind of being beaten down by the daily grind, I guess, in living in Brooklyn and trying to operate a dual career family with kids and commutes and birthday parties and all that. So it seemed like a big leap, a big change um, to go to Dakar. I'd never been there before. <laughs> what a thing. I mean, because you were <laughs> from Nebraska, you end up in New York, and then, well, logically, Dakar, Senegal. <laughs> and uh, and you wrote that uh, your family lucked out by being stationed in Dakar. How so? Oh, Dakar is so amazing. It's First of all, it's completely peaceful. There's not been a war there. It's just a very, very chill place to live. It's almost like uh, living in the Caribbean, I guess. It's a heavily Muslim country. And it's Sufism, which is very a very kind of relaxed form of Muslim, where uh, almost mystical in some ways, where um, you know there's a call to prayer every morning. And I have to say, like that, I really, really grew to love the call to prayer. You know, even though it yeah. you know, rings at like five or five thirty, um, you know, it's just kind of lulls through the air, and it's like, okay, morning started. Yep. It was almost like the Unitarianism of Islam. <laughs> Yeah, I love that yeah. because you could. That is kind of chill, you know. Yeah. It's, uh, and it's uh, more accessible, I think, less threatening to non-Muslims. Yeah. And the call to prayer, it is so important when you're on the road to uh, embrace the call to prayer. It's a, to me, it's a global wave of praise, kind of timed with this, the the way the world spins and with the sunrise and the sunset. Absolutely, wow. absolutely. It's really part of the rhythm of the day, and everyone, you know, in my family learned to really enjoy that. Yeah. And your hu- your husband apparently learned to uh, become a surfer, right? I mean, that's go to Africa and become a surfer. That's yeah, cool. it was really cool. So I think we often forget that, you know, that old movie Endless Summer, it, it started out in Dakar and Dakar is a huge surf hub. It has a break on both sides. I mean, it's it's in that like little tippy triangle point of um, the westernmost part of the, the continent. So you have the shoreline on both sides. There are a lot of surf schools and surf competitions, and it's just really, really magical. Um, There are no sharks because of overfishing, sadly, but it makes it very, very safe. You just have to watch out for the prickly sea urchins. That's a problem. But we got got very good at picking those out of um, heels and the bottoms of feet. (laughs) Give me a quick context on Senegal, because um, I'm keenly aware that it's so easy for most of us to think of Africa as, as one big 
place, but it has as much uh, distinct societies and unique countries as, as Europe does, for example. Now, Senegal's been independent only since 1960. Uh, what was its colonial heritage and why were the Europeans uh, interested in, in being involved in Senegal? That's right. It's a former French colony. So the language there is French and also a number of local languages too. But any educated person would speak French. Um, they teach that in the schools. Kids learn the local language Wolof usually or Pular in the north until they're about five and go to school. And then it's the government schools are all in French. And Senegal is a, a big place. You know, Dakar is the main city. There are a few other um, fishing communities that are bigger, but the vast majority of the land is is peanut farming. So, um, and that's some mm. pretty scrubby, wide, flat terrain. But Senegal also, you know, is has been over hunted and, and trees cut down and, you know, that kind of thing. But there are actually lions that still live in Senegal, which is most people don't really realize, but there are maybe like 14 lions that are still there. And they're really trying to bring back this special kind of West African lion. Of course, uh, Senegal was part of the slave trade and a lot of the, the strong men were just taken away and it just gutted the society. Uh, it is uh, rich with gold and ivory and that was interesting for the Europeans. Uh, today, you mentioned they grow a lot of peanuts. Uh, my understanding is there are trade policies and treaties and tariffs and so on that are kind of designed to keep undeveloped countries less developed by encouraging them to export their material, their their resources raw, but not processed. In other words, you can sell peanuts, but you can't sell peanut butter because the people who buy the raw peanuts can make the peanut butter somewhere else and really get mm. most of the profit. Do you have any sense of that? Is there anything to that? Well, that might be true. I mean, the places that I visited really were sustenance farming. They were people who were selling peanuts at the market for themselves. And I never saw a giant peanut operation. I know there's another um, really cool kind of grain that's being grown there that's called Fanyo. There's a chef called Pierre Cham who is bringing Fanyo. Actually, you can buy it at Whole Foods now. It's kind of like a cross between quinoa and couscous. And um, it's very climate change friendly. And that's grown in the South. And that's becoming an interesting kind of new business. And climate change friendly is important. They've got what's called climate smart agriculture now that's being employed in Africa, and it's it's critical. You mentioned earlier Senegal is uh, blessed by not having uh, a war, and uh, I learned that we're doing such good progress against extreme poverty, and in the future they hope that we can overcome hunger, but the one place where there will be hunger is where we have societies racked by war and hmm. conflict. It seems kind of potluck in Africa where there's war and where there's not. Uh, how do you see that? Because a lot of Africa is tragically wrapped up in crazy wars within the countries and, and between countries. In some areas. I mean, I think when you look at Africa as a region overall, really war makes up a very small portion of what's going on there. And I think a lot of different things fuel that government neglect, religious extremism, climate change, even a lack of jobs. All these things are interconnected for sure. And in some places, it just takes off. But really, Senegal has a really, um, it's really relaxed. People don't have weapons for the most part. You know, maybe some machetes, but that's literally only for farming. So there's just not a lot of violent crime at all. I mean, it's it's a really nice society. 
I would think that's part of your sort of mission as a journalist is just to let people know the image we have of Africa is far from the reality. And when you travel there, you can recognize that it's actually quite a lot like uh, other societies where we'd be much more comfortable uh, visiting. New York Times correspondent Dion Searcy is telling us what she and her family enjoyed about living in the Senegalese capital of Dakar right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Her memoir is called In Pursuit of Disobedient Women. Dion's part of a team at the Times that won a Pulitzer Prize for international reporting in 2020. She posts observations from her newsbeat on Twitter at Dion Searcy. That's S-E-A-R-C-E-Y. So let's talk about Senegal, Dion. Uh, first of all, the capital, Dakar. It's what about a million people? Uh, is there a skyline? Do you have a sort of a shiny business center? Uh, what's it like to walk around the streets of Dakar? Well, a lot of the streets are made of sand, so that's the first thing that will um, maybe throw you for a loop a little bit um, if you're not from a country where that happens a lot. But downtown has some some skyscrapers, but a lot of low-slung buildings. I mean, by and large, Dakar is pretty low-slung. A lot of concrete buildings that even are unpainted in many cases. Um, some really fancy neighborhoods where like the president lives, um, gated kind of mansions, I guess, maybe two-story, big, boxy kind of looking structures. But a lot of seaside restaurants that are really nice where you can sit and watch the surfers or watch the fishermen. These lovely giant wooden dugout canoes that are brightly painted called pirogues. Um, you can take one of those out to one of the little islands off the coast um, where you can get food or surf or one's a, a national park called Ile de Medlin, which has beautiful, beautiful vistas. There's a lighthouse. You can climb the hill to the lighthouse and overlook the city downtown is really hustly, bustly. Um, there are a lot of like clothes stores and you know art stores, some art galleries you can go to, and a giant new museum of Black civilizations. That's really one of the first modern big museums in sub-Saharan Africa. Wow, that sounds good. Now, I'm just intrigued by this. I think a lot of people are just wondering, how realistic is it just on a casual trip to drop in? I mean, if I'm flying to Europe, I can drop into Iceland and have a great time. I can, uh, you know, just uh, fly to Dublin and get off the plane and find a hotel and have a good time and then fly to Paris. Uh, just talk about the practicalities. Let's say I want to take a, a week on the way home from a trip to Europe and fly to Dakar for a, a little extra dimension. How practical is that? Uh, what, what's the red tape? What are the concerns? Sure. It's for, for one thing, Americans don't need a visa um, if you're staying under, you know, X number of weeks. So that's already the red tape is gone there. Let me just say this. It's, it's as close to fly to Paris from New York as it is to fly to Dakar. So it's one of those places that we don't think of as being very close. And it's extremely close. If you're in Paris, it's about a, like, what, five-hour flight direct mm -hmm. to Dakar. You go in, you get into this bright, shiny, beautiful new airport, you hop in a cab, you can pass a forest of baobab trees, those big kind of ugly, lumbering, half of the year leafless trees, you know, um, that are popular in The Little Prince, that book. You can pass those kinds of forests, you get into the city, your taxi guy can drop you off at an awesome Airbnb or maybe even at the Radisson Blue, which is right on the shoreline and big, fancy, glassy, 
beautiful hotel with outdoor with one of the best swimming pools I've ever seen. <laughs> sounds, it sounds so fun. Yeah. I loved it. And it's and it's so different. You got these wonderful baobab trees. I've I think they're in many countries in Africa. Mm-hmm. Giant trees. They serve as almost like town halls where people gather under them and in Ethiopia they'll do the coffee ritual under yeah. that. I've I've been to villages off the grid where that's the main square. It's the baobab tree and then a giant vast place where they'll gather for their markets. It's a big, beloved part of the landscape. Mm-hmm. We're talking with Dion Searcy. And Dion, you're a, a writer for the New York Times, and you wrote one of these wonderful 36 Hours uh, articles. Can you talk us through uh, the 36 hours you would lay out for a visit to Dakar? Just kind of think about it and then and paint a picture for us. Sure. I mean, I think what I would do, um, I would get up in the morning, I would take a surf class in the morning um, and spend just all morning in the beach, at the beach, going surfing and learning. That's a three or four hour activity. I would I would probably swing by a bakery on the way home and stand in line for really amazing croissants and other kinds of French pastries, um, which are readily available anywhere. I would, I'd probably go for And you like that uh, uh-huh. ca- Cafe Tuba? Was that yeah, something? Yeah, Cafe uh, Tuba, right. It's kind of the roadside coffee that you can get. There's also an awful lot of Nescafe, which maybe, uh-huh. you know, for people with finer coffee tastes, maybe uh, might not be excited about, but it's really yeah. fun. They have coffee carts where they mix the Nescafe and it's almost like, you know, they'll, they'll hold it up over their head and mix it into the cup and go back and forth with their hands in this really beautiful, almost like dancing routine, the way they mix it, the hot water. And that alone is fun to see. We used to like to go sit at one of the restaurants by the sea and watch the surfers or the fishermen take their big giant pirogues out and bring in the catch and just have a very leisurely afternoon. At nighttime, there are a number of rooftop restaurants. One place we like to go, just sort of down by this very odd, behind a very odd amusement park where you could walk down to maybe a not very nice beach. It had a little bit of trash and Mm -hmm. uh, pick out a giant fish to just have grilled right on the spot. There's a grouper fish that in local language, it's called chaff. And one of the ladies who sold it would let you pick out exactly which one you want, grill it up, and you can watch the sunset. She brings it out all perfectly, like deliciously mustardy, white, flaky fish. And she fries up some French fries and other things like vegetables for you. And you can watch the sun go down. And Oh, and, it sounds so yeah. good. And as a mother, you let your children grow up with that as their world. You must feel so good about the parenting <laughs> dimension, having had your family there for four years. Oh, uh, well, we'll see. Ask me in 10 years from now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Now, you, you talk about uh, Dakar as a, sort of a paradise of cool. Mm-hmm. You talk about late night dancing in a society which is predominantly Muslim, so there's no alcohol, but they enjoy their hookahs. Talk about the the music scene and and what's going on that way, because that is a big part of Senegal. Yeah, the music scene there, I mean, is really world-renowned. You might recognize some of these names like Yusuf Endor or Cher Lowe, but there are a lot of nightclubs where people just get really hopped up on, like, juice. (laughs) You know, they'll, they'll just drink a lot of hibiscus kind of juice called besop or, you know, just really sugary drinks and just go out and have a have a really fun time. And the party starts at about one or two in the morning and really goes all night. But one of the really interesting things that I loved about Dakar is how some of the old bands were getting back together, um, almost like in a Buena Vista social club kind of way. There's a band called Orchestra Baobab, um, these old, old guys who were getting back together to play concerts. I saw 
I saw them mm. perform one night at the British Embassy when they had a party for the Queen's birthday. It was mm. really fun. But they play at local restaurants. And, you know, there, there's just so much going on with music and art shows and poetry slams. And, you know, there's really no shortage of, of art and culture happening there. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Dion Searcy. Her book is In Pursuit of Disobedient Women, talking about her four-year stint as the bureau chief for West Africa of the New York Times. You know, Dion, talking to you, it just makes me wish everybody could have the travel experiences like this. Uh, do you ever think about the value? Imagine if, if every American could have a couple of weeks recognizing the, the humanity and the joy and the love you can find in a continent that, that we really don't appreciate, we don't understand. I think that's exactly right. You know, you, you make me think I, I met a guy at a party in, in the pre-COVID days um, one time who was telling me that his his mission in life was to buy passports and buy, like, arrange for and take kids to the passport office and give kids passports. So at least they had, like, kids who were disadvantaged, at least they had this this thing that if they had the opportunity to go abroad, they wouldn't be stopped by the kind of government red tape of not having a passport or being able to afford it. And I thought that was really smart because I do think if we all branched out and explored our curiosity and, and learned about different places, we would have such a different vision of the world. That would be an investment in national security if we could all get out there and have, a, have an empathy for the other 96% of humanity. And in our travels, in so many countries, we would encounter what you talk about in your book in Senegal, um, a tradition called Teranga. What is Teranga? Yeah, Teranga is so, it's so cool. I'll just give you an anecdote. You walk down the street in Senegal and you know, I would walk uh, past all these gated communities a lot and the security guards would be sitting outside with a giant plate of fanyo and fish and carrots and potatoes and all this other stuff on top of it. And they would beckon me over to share some of their meal with them. That is Taranga. It's like the spirit of community and sharing. And that's really, really a national value system for for Senegal. And I think it's really beautiful. Dion Searcy, thank you so much for shining a light on Senegal and uh, best wishes with your journalism and your parenting and your travels going forward. Thank you so much. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Kazimer Hall, and Donna Bardsley. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank and radio affiliate relations are by Sheila Gerzoff. When you're traveling, find out when other stations air travel with Rick Steves. There's a link to our affiliate listings in the radio section of our website. It's at ricksteves.com radio. We'll see you next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves, and I love art. And in my new book, Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, I share my favorites with gorgeous photos and vivid descriptions. It's all in Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, Art for the Traveler. It's available now at ricksteves.com.